In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a generous helping of our favourite stories from across the week. I'm Christopher Lockwood, The Economist's Europe editor. And coming up, on International Women's Day, the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, and Annie Lennox discussed the greatest obstacles to gender equality. We'll hear a dispatch from a ship full of scientists on its way to explore the frozen Antarctic. And what the samba dancers of Rio's carnival can teach Brazil about its neglected history and its present. But we begin with our cover story, which this week heralded a new scramble for Africa. In the 19th century, imperial powers competed for land and plunder. During the Cold War, the struggle was over ideology. Today's gold rush is different, and though foreigners expect to do well out of it, the real winners, for once, could be Africans themselves. Outsiders have noticed that the continent is important and becoming more so, not least because of its growing share of the global population. By 2025, the UN predicts that there will be more Africans than Chinese people. Governments and businesses from all around the world are rushing to strengthen diplomatic, strategic and commercial ties. This creates vast opportunities. Unprecedented foreign engagement is upending the old diplomatic pecking order. From 2010 to 2016, more than 320 embassies were opened in Africa, probably the biggest embassy building boom anywhere ever. Turkey alone opened 26. Last year, India announced it would open 18. Military ties are deepening too. America and France are lending muscle and technology to the struggle against jihadism in the Sahel. China is now the biggest arms seller to sub-Saharan Africa and has defense technology ties with 45 countries. Russia has signed 19 military deals with African states since 2014. Oil-rich Arab states are building bases on the Horn of Africa and hiring African mercenaries. Commercial ties are being upended. As recently as 2006, Africa's three biggest trading partners were America, China and France in that order. By 2018, it was China first, India second and America third. France was seventh. Over the same period, Africa's trade has more than trebled with Turkey and Indonesia and more than quadrupled with Russia. We argued that Overall, this has brought a net benefit to the continent. But there is more African countries can do to increase their share. No one expects a heterogeneous continent that includes both anarchic battle zones and prosperous democracies to be as integrated as Europe. But it can surely do better than letting China negotiate with each country individually behind closed doors. The power imbalance between, say, China and Uganda is huge. It could be reduced somewhat with a free trade area, or if African regional blocs clubbed together. But the onus to get them to do it may lie with African voters. As education improves and Africans move rapidly to the cities, they are growing more critical of their rulers and less frightened to say so. In 1997, 70% of African ruling parties won more than 60% of the vote, partly by getting rural chiefs to cow villages into backing them. By 2015, only 50% did. As politics grows more competitive, voters' clout will grow, and they will be able to insist on a form of globalisation that works for Africans and foreigners alike. 
You can find an in-depth analysis of the new scramble for Africa and what Africa can get out of it in this week's issue of The Economist. And if you want to subscribe, you can get your first 12 issues for just $12 or £12 by going to economist.com slash radio offer. Africa's resources are still undeniably part of the draw. Some of them have only become valuable very recently. Take cobalt, a rare metal vital for making the rechargeable batteries that power our phones and laptops. Our global current affairs podcast, The Intelligence, explored how fears over a shortage of cobalt were overcome and shed light on the subtle power dynamics of big data. Here's Alice Fullwood, our Wall Street correspondent. Last year, when Apple's investors got concerned, there was a shortage of cobalt. One of the big data providers, which is actually run by UBS, the Swiss investment bank, they actually went into the the Congo and took aerial satellite pictures of rivers around copper mines because cobalt is a byproduct of the copper mining process. Their insight was that people had been mining copper for decades and cobalt was useless at the time, so they'd just been dumping it into rivers and streams near these copper mines. So they took these aerial pictures and they analysed them. They could see that the cobalt was there and they could also see that people were extracting it. So that led them to believe that actually there was a glut in global cobalt supply, not a shortage. Uh, So that helped investors in Apple. And the debate you tend to hear with big companies and sort of big data is that, you know, they're using it to spy on us. And in fact, people are missing that it goes both ways. We can also use it to spy on them. A lack of reliable data was of grave concern to our latest guest on The Economist Asks. Christine Lagarde, Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. The fund is often described as the firefighter of the global financial system. And one of the fiercest fires on their radar at the moment is, of course, Venezuela. Anne McElvoy asked for her assessment of the task of reconstruction when and if it occurs. As soon as we are asked by the legitimate authorities of that country to come in and help, we will come in. And we'll have a monumental job on our hands because this is a country that has not opened its door to the IMF for the last 15 years. So we have not conducted any of the annual audit that we do on all our members in the institution. So there is a lot of due diligence that we're going to have to do in a very expedited manner, but which will be required in order... Do you think it's likely order- that you will be in there for an IMF rescue on Venezuela? I think it will be fundamentally important because we play a catalyst role and the amount of financing that will be needed is, you know, significant. Uh, Our wallet will not be sufficient. Last week, we actually published a rare double issue of The Economist Asks for International Women's Day. Anne McElvoy chaired a panel of formidable women, including the Duchess of Sussex, formerly known as Meghan Markle, and Annie Lennox, an award-winning singer-songwriter and activist. Here's Annie Lennox assessing the greatest remaining obstacles to gender equality. Charitable organisations are terribly, terribly important. They do amazing work, but we cannot solve it alone by charitable. Charity. It must be transformed into political, social change, a huge movement. So, Your Royal Highness, what's blocking progress for women and equality in today's world? Don't hold back. 
Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Oh, you don't say. Um, No, I mean, look, I think we've covered how important education is. That we know. That is one huge thing. The lack of access to education is, in my mind, the single largest hindrance to this equality that we are all seeking out. But then we have a responsibility as well that if we're part of social media, if we're engaging in that way, that we are not just giving people more things to chat about, but actually something to do. And that's why I say, what's the call to action? A hashtag is not enough. In the latest episode of our Babbage podcast, we heard a dispatch from the frozen Antarctic. The iceberg A68 is four times the size of London, and when it broke off from the main shelf, it revealed a marine ecosystem hidden for as much as 120,000 years. We spoke to Dr Hugh Griffiths, a marine biogeographer, currently on a ship bound for the site, about what he hoped to find there. Antarctica is an amazing place to work because... As it stands, even if we go somewhere that is relatively well-known in Antarctica, it's nowhere near as well-known as the rest of the world. So we always find new species to science anyway. But in an area that nobody's ever looked in, a habitat that nobody's ever been to before, then I'm expecting that anything living there, there must be a good percentage of it. If we compare it to the deep sea, more than 50% of what we find in the deep sea is new to science. So I'm looking at, well, hoping for those kind of numbers in this case. Unfortunately, now that it's been uncovered, that ecosystem will inevitably start to change and humans will look for ways to exploit it. We have a terrible knack for that. A case in point is the palm oil industry. Swathes of tropical rainforest are raised to make way for plantations, devastating local biodiversity. But as a piece in this week's Asia section reported, there's one notable exception. Snakes. They feast on the swarms of rats that are attracted to plantations by the energy-packed palm kernels. Studies have found more than 400 rodents a hectare on palm oil farms. Stacks of dead palm fronds give ample cover for rats and reptiles alike. According to a recent report by the International Union for Conservation of Nature, at least eight species of snake thrive on oil palm plantations – They are often more prevalent on plantations than in neighbouring jungles. Signs warn workers to wear thick gloves against bites and to beware of enormous pythons. But there are some advantages. Snakeskins can fetch $30 to $60 a piece, roughly a week's wage. Many are shipped to Europe to become fashionable belts or handbags. Another money spinner is to milk poisonous snakes and sell the venom. For oil palm companies too, there are upsides. The snakes, after all, prevent even bigger infestations of rats, which would reduce yields. Indeed, some oil palm firms wish for more snakes on their plantations. Agro Caribe, a Guatemalan one, set up its own snake hatchery. Over now to our Americas section, which this week noted a deeper message behind the winning dance troupe's performance at the Rio Carnival. The Mangueira Samba School won Rio de Janeiro's carnival competition for the 20th time. This year's parade and theme song were a drum-blasted history lesson celebrating largely forgotten black and indigenous heroes, including Dandara, a colonial-era warrior who chose suicide over slavery. But not all of those remembered belong to the distant past. 
Also honoured was Marielle Franco, a gay Rio City councilwoman who was murdered in March last year. I've come to protest, not to parade, her widow said. And finally, our books and arts section reviewed an attempt to uncover quite a different episode of forgotten or suppressed history. Manual for Survival by Kate Brown sets out to discover the true medical and environmental fallout of the world's worst ever nuclear accident, Chernobyl. Where officials attributed rising levels of illness in contaminated areas to better screening and psychological stress, she finds long-suppressed evidence that suggests a different story. While direct causation is nearly impossible to prove, she marshals correlations that link chronic exposure to low doses of radiation with thyroid, heart and eye disease, cancers, endocrine and digestive tract disorders, anemia, birth defects and infant deaths. The site itself has now become a tourist attraction, selling T-shirts and glowing fridge magnets. Inside the zone, tourists scramble about in search of hot spots, their decimeters a chorus of disregarded warnings. Today, most visitors absorb less radiation in a day than during a typical transatlantic flight. In 1986, harmful fallout spread for hundreds of kilometers. Political rows erupted over the dose and distance thresholds for evacuation. In time, radiation moved through the environment and human bodies in complex, poorly understood ways. Most haunting are her accounts of how radioactive isotopes progressed through the food supply. Loath to sacrifice production targets, Soviet planners ordered slaughterhouses to mix radioactive and clean meat to make sausages. The Soviets were not alone in circulating poisoned wares. Greek wheat, contaminated by the fallout, was eventually blended into consignments of aid shipped to Africa and East Germany. Even now, Ms. Brown joins pickers in the forests of northern Ukraine who combine hot and clean berries so the crop meets radiation requirements for exports. She argues that the cover-up extended beyond the Soviet Union. After all, the global nuclear industry relies on the notion that low doses of radiation are harmless. If Chernobyl could be shown to have no effect on human health, Ms. Brown argues, then the fallout from nuclear testing, the seeping radioactive waste from bomb factories, the civilian reactors that daily emitted radioactivity, the widespread use of radiation in medical treatments, and the exposed bodies of workers, patients and innocent bystanders in secret medical tests could be forgotten. In this analysis, Chernobyl was a crisis not only of the Soviet Union, but of modern civilization. Well, that's the end of this week's Tasting Menu. But remember, you can read or listen to all of these stories and much more at economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And while you're with us, please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Christopher Lockwood, and in London, this is The Economist.